Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good uh, to see you here. And if you're joining us online, thanks for checking us out. Um, just before we get into the message, I just want to mention that one month from today, this is a save the date announcement. You'll get more details next week. One month from today, we're bringing back a lot of our Wednesday night programming, a lot of our Wednesday night discipleship environments. And so we're going to have kids on Wednesday nights. We're going to have uh, adult classes right here in the sanctuary. And so the youth meet from 6.30 to 7.30, and we'll be having children's happening at the same time. We're going to start the seven-week class on September 22nd called The Word and the Spirit. I'm just going to back this up. And uh, we're excited about this. So next Sunday, we'll give you all the details, all the info, how you can connect and how you can be a part of these classes and these opportunities to grow. So uh, end of summer's coming. Sorry to break it to you. And the clue is the state fair is here, right? I always feel like the state fair is like the final hurrah of the summer. And I know there's a lot of people who aren't going to the state fair this year for obvious reasons, but I actually am a fan of the state fair. We're a house divided. My wife would be happy to never go to the state fair again, but I love the state fair. And the main reason, let's be honest, the main reason sane people love the state fair is the food. There's like, if, on a list of reasons, there's the food and then, you know, there's all these other ones down here. But going and having whatever crazy fried concoction they came up with, it's just a place where you go and you throw all your eating inhibitions away and you just go for it, right? And so that's a lot lot of fun. Uh, people watching, anyone enjoy people watching at the fair? That's sort of the second favorite pastime of mine, going through the buildings, seeing the animals. But the one thing I don't quite understand is people who go for the rides, because I'm not a ride person at the fair. Um, I don't I, don't, I think I don't have enough bravery, honestly, to get on some of those rides. I've, I've seen what happens to those rides when the fair is done. They fold on top of themselves like they're a transformer. <laughs> And then they go on the back of a, a truck, and then I've seen them bumping down 690 after the fair. And I'm like, anything that can do that, should not, my life should not depend on that thing. I love roller coasters, but I do not go on roller coasters at the fair. As we've been in our series looking at the life of Joseph, I think we would all agree that Joseph's life has been a roller coaster. Serious highs and serious lows. Joseph, if you're not familiar with the story, he's the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons, and he was the favorite of his father. His father loved him so much that he gave him a special robe that indicated that he was kingly, that he was royal, that he was special. But Joseph's brothers, as you might expect, hated him. And so what they did is they first said, we're going to kill him. But then they changed their mind and said, let's profit off of him. And so they sell him into slavery. So he goes from a high to a low. And he ends up the slave in a house of an Egyptian named Potiphar. And in Potiphar's house, he is promoted to second in command where he's running the entire house, another high for Joseph. But then he gets accused of doing something he didn't do. And he gets thrown into an Egyptian prison for doing it, another low. And last week we saw that it was in that prison that he began to develop his gift as someone who could interpret dreams. And he interpreted the dream of somebody very important in the kingdom who he thought, this person is important and they will open important doors for me. But Joseph was forgotten. So when we pick up the story in Genesis 41, it's been two years since Joseph interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Two years he's been forgotten how long has he been in prison? We don't know for sure, but probably five, six, seven years he's sitting in prison. And unbeknownst to him, in Genesis, or in, yeah, in Genesis chapter 41, something very significant happens. We go from prison to the palace. And Pharaoh, who is essentially the king or the ruler of Egypt, has two dreams. In chapter 21, we learn about these two dreams. In the first dream, 
what Pharaoh sees is these seven fat cows that come out of the Nile River. They look yummy. They're ready for ribeye, like these delicious-looking cows. And then right after them, seven gaunt, disgusting-looking cows also come out of the Nile River. And these seven skinny, dying cows eat and consume the seven fat cows. Carnivorous, cannibalistic cows. That's got to be a band name, right? That sounds like a band name. And so he wakes up kind of startled and falls back to sleep, and he has a second dream, which to the uh, Egyptians was very significant. If you had parallel dreams like this, it meant that God was trying to say something to you. And in the second dream, there's seven healthy um, heads of grain, and then seven dying, sickly heads of grain consume those seven healthy ones. And Pharaoh wakes up, and he doesn't know what it means. He can't get clarity, and he can't get peace, and he can't get rest. And so he calls the magicians, the sorcerers, the wise men, the dream interpreters of Egypt. And he says, here's my dream. Tell me what it means. And none of them can interpret the dream for him. And then the cupbearer, the one that Joseph had interpreted his dream in prison two years ago, all of a sudden he goes, oh, I remember. There was a Hebrew slave in the prison. And when I told him my dream, he interpreted it perfectly. So look what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh, in verse 14, it says, he sent for Joseph at once. And Joseph was quickly bought, brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he had to be presentable to go before Pharaoh because they thought of Pharaoh as a god. He went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Look at Joseph's reply. He says, it is beyond my power to do this, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. I can't do it, but I know someone who can. And God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream, and the interpretation of the dream is this. Egypt is going to have seven years of unbelievable prosperity, harvest, tons of food, good weather, great times, but then it's going to be followed by seven years of tremendous famine. And the seven years of famine are going to be so bad, they're going to make Egypt forget the seven years of plentiful. And Joseph delivers this interpretation. Now, here's what's happening in this moment. An entire empire, the empire of Egypt, is hanging in the balance. Their survival is at stake in this moment. If Pharaoh doesn't get the interpretation, and if they don't plan for the famine that's coming... All of the Egyptians will starve, they will die, this civilization will cease to exist. And not just Egypt, because we'll see later that Egypt provided food for other people, including God's people, his chosen people, the Hebrews. And at this moment where there's so much at stake in history, the king that everybody looks to, Pharaoh, who's supposed to be God, who's supposed to know what to do, he can't even interpret his own dream. He's clueless, he's hopeless, and he's powerless. But thankfully, the true king shows up on the scene. And this morning, we're going to learn three things about this true king. And the first thing we're going to learn is this, the plans of the true king, that the true king, that our God, has plans. Now, Joseph is 30 years old when he gets pulled out of prison, shaved, dressed, and brought before Pharaoh. 30 years old. We know that when his brother sold him into slavery, he was 17. That means for 13 years of his life, almost half of his life, he's been apart from his family, torn away from his family, torn away from his dreams. 13 birthdays he's celebrated alone. I did the math. 4,745 mornings that he woke up as a prisoner or as a slave. 113,880 hours that he had to think to himself, have I been forgotten? 
Does God have any plans for me? I wonder how many times Joseph may have thought, what is my life worth now? What is my point? What is my purpose? If you know the story of Joseph, when he was little, he had these amazing dreams that God was gonna raise him up to do incredible things. And it's been 13 years. Where's the plan? And what we see in this moment is that the true king has a plan. The plan is not always seen by us. In fact, God's plans are often hidden from us. But in hindsight, we can see what he's been doing all along. Just because we don't know what he's doing doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. And we learn to trust in his plans. 13 years earlier, when Joseph's brothers were beating him up and stripping him of his robe of many colors and throwing him into that pit and selling him into slavery, 13 years ago, God already knew that this moment was coming. God already knew that Pharaoh would have this dream. And God already knew that he would need to prepare and place Joseph in a place where he could use him. Listen, if, if, if God just took Joseph when he was 17 and moved him into Pharaoh's court, Joseph would have never been ready for it. Joseph was a prideful little kid. He was an arrogant little kid. He was bragging about his dreams to his big brothers. You're pretty prideful if you're telling your 10 big brothers who are bigger than you that they're going to bow down to you someday. And Joseph's running his mouth. If Joseph had received the sort of power that he's going to receive in this story, it would have destroyed his soul. But God used those 13 years to chip away at Joseph to break him down, to break him free of his self-reliance and his arrogance and his pride to the point when his moment finally came, instead of Joseph saying, well, let me roll up my sleeves and show you what I can do, he said, I, I actually don't have the answers, but I know one who does. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning, but maybe you feel like you're in the midst of 13 years of being broken down and shaped and chiseled and formed. And I just want to tell you this morning that God has a plan. He's preparing you for something. Joseph would have never been ready to lead Egypt if he hadn't first led in Potiphar's house and then led in the prison. He was second in command in the Potiphar's house. He became second in command in prison. And we'll see by the end of this story, he becomes second in command in all of the nation, the empire of Egypt. He has a plan. So Joseph then, after he interprets the dream, I love this, Joseph has a plan. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, listen, I know you're not asking my opinion, but let me tell you what I think you should do. For the next seven years, you should take 20% of all of your produce and all of your surplus and set it aside. Build these massive storehouses, bulk up all the food in there so that when the seven years of famine come, we can ration out the food. You know what this is, right? This is the origin of Costco's. Like, this is a really big moment for me. This is, this is the first bulk store, lots of food going into one building. Praise God for Joseph, because we have Costco's now. I'm joking. But... Joseph comes up with this plan, and one of the things that we learn here is that when God reveals his plan, it doesn't lead his people to sit back and say, good plan, God, do it. <laughs> I'm going to sit back and watch. When God, whenever God reveals something to his people that he's about to do, it's always so that we can get and join in, that we can be a part of what he's doing. So when God reveals his plan that he wants to rescue people and restore people to right relationship with him and give people peace and freedom and restore the very image of God that's been placed within, of them, within them, instead of us sitting back and saying, good plan, God, good luck, God wants us to be a part of his plan. It's never sit back and watch. It's always lean in. Join in and be a part of what God is doing. And every single one of us in this room, God has a plan for your life and a purpose for your life. 
In verse 37, it says that Joseph's suggestions were well-received by Pharaoh and his officials. They, they liked Joseph's plan. So Pharaoh said to his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Pharaoh, this, this pluralistic, hedonistic king, recognizes something about Joseph. Now, Pharaoh is not converted here. He doesn't become a monotheistic leader here. But he recognizes that there is a Spirit of God upon Joseph. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. One of the commentaries that I read said this, that when God has purposes, the purposes of God, listen, require a human counterpart. The transcendent plans of God require concrete historical action. Because when God wants to do something, he chooses one of us to join in with his great work and to do something in history and in time that makes a difference. God has plans and his plans include you. Now listen, it's highly unlikely you will interpret the dreams of a pharaoh. You may never do that, probably won't. But you may say a kind word to a stranger at just the right time. You may befriend your neighbor who needs help. You may have a business idea that blesses our community. You may invent something that helps people's lives. You may discover something that saves people's lives. You may love your spouse faithfully for the entirety of your marriage. You may raise your kids to love God and stand for truth in a world where it's increasingly hard to even talk about truth. You may open your homes to other people, your home, or if you have multiple homes, your homes to other people and invite them in. You may give generously to those who are in need. You may pray regularly for our world. Your hearts, our hearts as the people of God, should be broken by what we see in Afghanistan and broken by what we see happening in Haiti and all over the world. To pray for those people, but not just to pray, to say, God, what do you want to do? Who's already doing something there, and how can I be a part of it? There's great organizations on the ground in Haiti that we're partnered with. There are ministries in Afghanistan, although obviously most of the American ministries are now out of Afghanistan. But there are ways that we can not just pray. Praying is is primary, but there's ways that we can give, we can support, and if you ever want to know how you can do that, we will help you connect with the right organizations. But when God reveals his plan, that means that there's something for us to do. You may feel like you're in the middle of 4,745 consecutive mornings of waking up and going, why am I here? What is the purpose and plan for my life? But you're not an accident. You're, you're, you're not here to waste your life. God has a specific plan and purpose for each of your lives. And as we're faithful in the little things, he will reveal to us the opportunities before us. The second thing that we see in this story is the power of the true king. There's something I learned this week studying this passage that I never knew before, and it's this. That it was very unusual and somewhat, dis, um, somewhat concerning that Pharaoh would ask anyone for help with the interpretation of the dream. And the reason is this. The Egyptians thought Pharaoh was God. Not the only God but one of many gods. And so for a god to receive dreams from gods and not know the meaning, that was problematic for the Egyptian worldview because Pharaoh was supposed to have all power and all insight. And here he is saying, I got this dream. You know, I, when you read the story afterwards and you get the interpretation, you're like, it's kind of obvious. Like, it's not like it's just like seven cows eating. You know, like, it makes sense once Joseph explains it. You're like, how did nobody else figure this out? But Pharaoh cannot get clarity, he cannot get peace, he cannot get rest. And when he goes to the wise men and the sorcerers to ask them for help, it's a, it's, it's a significant moment in the Egyptian court because all of a sudden people are realizing, oh my goodness, does our God not have the power? 
that we think he has? Does he not have the answers that we hope he has? And there's something really important in Pharaoh's first dream that would also have shook them to their core, and it's this, the Nile River. Now, in Egyptian society and the culture then, the Nile River was the source of life. It was everything. Everybody built around the river. Everybody lived off the river. If the river dried up, the society, the civilization would have to move on. They would cease to exist. And the Nile River was a divine source of life. That's how it was perceived. So when these gaunt, skinny, disgusting cows came out of the Nile River and consumed the healthy cows, what it meant was this. The Nile River is not just a source of life or is no longer a source of life. Now it is a source of death. And that's a problem because Pharaoh's over that as God. He's the one who's supposed to secure life for his people. And this dream means you no longer can. This is probably one of the reasons why none of the dream interpreters were able to interpret this. Because even if they understood the significance of what he told them, they were never going to tell him. Because <laughs> they basically would be saying, Pharaoh, what it means is you're not God. You're not, there's no real power. You can't really give life. This reminds me of the gods of this world, the kings of this world. The things that we give our lives to, that we pledge our allegiance to, that we sacrifice for, that the foundations that we build our lives on, those things, in a sense, are kings. What do I mean? They rule over us. They control our emotions. They, they reign over us. They determine how we live our lives. Nobody gets through life without choosing a king. Everybody has some king that they serve, that they bow they, they their knee to. It could be career, it could be power, it could be physical appearance, it could be success, it could be control, it could be lots of different things, but everybody has a king. But all the kings of this world, they claim to have power, they claim to give you life, but when you really get them, what you find is there's death inside of those things because they enslave you and they don't satisfy you. And what we're learning here is that the power of the true king is so much greater than the false power of these counterfeit kings that we give our lives to and that we put our hopes in here and now. And there's something really interesting happens. He brings Joseph in front of him, and Joseph is standing before Pharaoh, and it seems like an imbalance of power, right? You have the Pharaoh, and you have a Hebrew slave who just minutes ago was unshaved and dirty, but one of the commentaries I read said, when you study this passage, the question you have to ask yourself is this, who's really standing before who? It looks like Joseph is standing before Pharaoh, but in God's eyes, Pharaoh is standing before Joseph. Because Pharaoh is not the true king. The true king is God. And God sends his servant into the court of Pharaoh, and now the true king is in the room. And all the power shifts from Pharaoh to Joseph. Pharaoh looks to Joseph and says, can you do this for me? Can you give me clarity? Can you give me peace? Can you give me hope? Can you give me direction? And when we see the true God for who he is, we find this is what we've been searching for our whole lives. And it's found in God and in God alone. And Joseph stands before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, do you know and understand the meaning of this dream? And what we learn here is that the kingdoms of this world are exposed to be powerless when they stand before the true king. The kingdom of our God is powerful, but I also want to add this caveat before we go to our last point. The kingdom of God does not express its power in the way that the kingdoms of this world express their power. The kingdoms of this world are loud. They're brash. They're in your face. They'll let you know what they think. Years ago, I was playing basketball, pickup basketball with my cousin down in New York City, and I was, he was better than me, but I, I was talking a pretty good game. And so I thought, if I, maybe if I talk a big game, I'll, I'll get in his head. And he looked at me, and he goes, David, an empty can makes a lot of noise. <laughs> and I never, I never forgot that little lesson he taught me. Listen, 
The things of this world, the kingdoms of this world, they're empty cans. They make a lot of noise, but they're empty. They can't satisfy. The kingdom of God has a totally different way. And listen, I was thinking about this this week. The kingdom of God doesn't just have a different message. Of course it does. But it doesn't just have a different message. The kingdom of God has different methods. Where the kingdoms of this world prop up pharaohs, the kingdom of God lifts up Joseph's. It's a very different way of going about it. we got to be careful that we don't get so caught up in the kingdom of this earth that we try to accomplish things for God just the same way that the kingdoms of this world try to accomplish their things. Because there's a very different way. In fact, when you study Jesus' parables on the kingdom of God, let me show you this real quick. The, kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God, the way that growth happens in the kingdom of God, according to the parables of Jesus, I'm not going to read them all to you right now, but the growth in the kingdom is often unseen. There's a parable where Jesus talks about how the farm, the plants, they grow when nobody sees that they're growing, but they still grow. Sometimes growth is unseen. I can promise you that even in this challenging season of 18 months that we've gone through as a country, as a nation, as a world, not for one moment has the kingdom of God stopped moving forward. It's been unseen at times, but it's growing. Second thing we see is that the, kingdom in, the growth in the kingdom is often slow. The metaphor that Jesus and the apostle Paul use most often to talk about the kingdom is botanical, agricultural. It's organic. That's frustrating to me sometimes because have you ever sat and watched stuff grow? Watch a flower grow. You're like, come on, get to it, right? And sometimes it feels like things are moving slow. But next point, growth in the kingdom may be slow, but it's inevitable. You can't stop it. It's growing. Just like life will break through cement eventually, the kingdom will break through. And the last thing we see is that the kingdom growth is incredible. Now, the kingdoms of this world, unseen growth, no, of course not. As soon as something good happens in their kingdom, they're going to let you know about it. Slow, not as fast and quick as possible. Inevitable, no, that ends up crumbling apart. Incredible, no, it, be, it ends up often the power that people have. We see this in politics, we see this in government, we see this in society. Power ends up destroying people. It's not incredible, it actually becomes destructive to their very soul. And the power of the true king is different. It shows up in unexpected ways. And it may not give you the earthly power that you crave, but that actually may be a gift from God protecting you from what power could do to your soul. Last point this morning is this. We see the people of the true king. Joseph is elevated from prison to the palace, and he becomes second in command. And this is how God loves to do things. He likes to choose the foolish to confound the wise. He chooses the weak to overcome the strong, because in doing so, he gets all the glory for what's happened. It's his strength has made perfect in our weakness. It's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. But this is what it means to be the people of God, to walk into your moment, to walk into your opportunity, and to speak into your arena of life, whether you're in education, whether you're in politics, whether you're raising children in a home, whether you work in the business market, wherever you are, to walk into that place knowing that the Spirit of God dwells within you. The true King lives within you. And so when you walk into those areas, you can know, I am a child of God. And we walk in as Joseph did, not prideful, not arrogant, not telling people that we know how they should live their lives and what they should do, but rather saying, I- I'm an empty can. <laughs> but there's a spirit of a God, there's a spirit of the God dwells within me and fills me to do great things for him. Look at who God chooses. I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to sing in just a minute. It's amazing about this story to me is that Joseph is standing before Pharaoh, and the next time... Listen, the next time a Hebrew will stand in front of Pharaoh will be 500 years later. 
It won't be one person. It'll be someone speaking for millions of people. 500 years after Joseph, Moses will walk in front of Pharaoh, and he'll say, let my people go. And it starts here. Joseph's journey, you'll see this next week, what Joseph does here, God's plan for Joseph's life, it doesn't just save the Egyptians. It preserves God's people. His family were going to die in this famine if Joseph didn't go through what he went through to get where he is, to do what he does. And this is what it means sometimes to be the people of God, to be willing to say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, whatever you ask me to do for your greater purposes and for your greater plans. Even when I don't understand, when I cannot see what you're doing, I will trust you. And that's what it means to be a part of his people. To use our gifts to glorify him. My my friend David Hamm is a pastor at Times Square Church in Manhattan. And earlier this week, I saw a tweet from him that said this, the devil isn't worried about your gifts and talents, doesn't care. All he's worried is that you'll use them for the glory of Jesus. He's not scared by how smart you are, how funny you are, what kind of a communicator you are, how good on an instrument you are. It doesn't scare him. What scares him is, will you use your gifts for the glory of Jesus instead of your own glory? For the true king, instead of all these counterfeit kings. Joseph's story here, I just want to show you one more thing before I finish that happens. He's given an Egyptian name, he's given an Egyptian wife, and he has two children. It says in verse 50, during this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And then he named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of grief. Now, in studying these two names this week, Manasseh and Ephraim, what the commentators say is that another way to translate Manasseh is this, that God has relieved the condition of debt from me, that a debt that I owed, the pain of my past has been removed from me. And then Ephraim means there's fruitfulness in life in front of me. And when I read the meaning of those two names, I thought, isn't this exactly what Jesus does for us? When we come to him and we put our faith and trust in him, he removes from us the condition of debt, that you and I owe to God a perfect performance record that we cannot manufacture in our own strength if we had 100 lifetimes to try. Every single one of us gets it wrong on day one. He relieves us from the condition of debt, and then he doesn't just leave us there. He brings us into life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. I want to finish by reading this verse. Titus chapter 2 says this, the grace of God has appeared. Jesus showed up, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, what did he do? He gave himself for us to redeem us, to remove the condition of debt from our souls, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If God saved you, it means he saved you from something, but he's also saved you for something. I know that God has plans that are good. I know he has power that is available. And I know that he wants us to be a part of his people. It's on us to respond. Say, here I am. Send me. Let's pray together.